The Jadery Podcast, episode number 131, Rampant Expansion. Today on the Jay Doherty Podcast. Coronavirus continues to grow and politics continues to interrupt. As the intensity of the virus grows, so does the partisanship on both sides. I'll continue my monologue about the scary models released by the CDC and we'll try to answer how the U.S. government is doing in these tough times. Also, some tech news to drift away from the usual. Apple continues to make the headlines despite the omnipresent COVID-19. The company recently purchased popular weather app Dark Sky and they're going to be pulling the plug on the Android version. Also, in tech, cell phone carrier T-Mobile has acquired its competitor Sprint. What do these major changes in the tech space mean and how will they affect the millions of people who use those services every day. And finally, an interview with someone who is using COVID-19 as an opportunity to entertain. Music influencer Michael Heidemann has been hosting live streams where he and various other artists around the country are casually performing songs over the internet to occupy and delight the many people who are required to stay inside these days. He deems these lockdown live streams. Where can you listen to Michael? How often is he doing this? And how did he come up with this idea in the first place? We'll answer all that and more in episode number 131 of the Jay Doherty Podcast. This is the Jay Doherty Podcast. And now from Chicago, here's your host, Jay Doherty. That is correct, everyone. Thank you very much for being here. This is the Jay Doherty Podcast, episode number 131. It's currently Friday, April 3rd, 2026, 16 p.m. as we come on the air. A little bit of a later episode today, but that's all right broadcasting live not only on audio but also on video hello to everyone watching right now on the video i'm not sure if we'll actually end up publishing it but we are testing it out so if you do want to maybe see the video you can go to jay-dogrty.com slash 131 but we begin immediately with your update on covid19 coronavirus the most important thing you can do right now is to stay inside and to not spread the virus that's basically what all the experts are saying right now so highly recommend doing that i highly recommend just following the advice of experts in the field. And one of the things that you can actually do, and one of the things I highly recommend, is just to be grateful and outwardly express your kindness and gratitude in any way you can to any doctors or nurses or medical professionals that you know, because, you know, they are fighting this very quickly and very swiftly. They're doing a really good job, and it really, I mean, helps, you know, just to thank them. And I think that that really makes a big difference in someone's day, especially when they're literally out there fighting an enemy that is invisible. And it's growing, too. I mean, really, we'll begin with your uh, COVID-19 numbers update. 1,094,068 cases total in the world. 273,000 of those are in the United States. Italy and Spain are number two and three, hovering around 119,000 cases. In terms of total deaths, there are 58,787. Italy leads in deaths. Spain is next, and then leading up to them is France. And those, those countries are the ones that are uh, really taking the biggest hits. In terms of forecasting what is to come in the future, it's actually really hard. In fact, an article from 538, the first sentence of it is, building a model to forecast the COVID-19 outbreak is really freaking hard. That's literally what the article says. You can actually read it on the show notes, or if you're watching on the video, you'll see that they literally say that building a model to, uh, build, to forecast the COVID-19 outbreak is really freaking hard. They say that's one reason that we've been following a weekly survey of infectious disease researchers from institutions around the United States. This week's survey, taken on March 30th and 31st, shows that experts expect between an average of 263,000 COVID-19-related deaths in 2020, but anywhere between 71,000 and 1.7 million deaths is a reasonable estimate. That is a ginormous gap in the amount of people who could die as a result of COVID-19. They say the researchers believe that only 12% of all COVID-19 
infections in the United States have been reported, and they don't expect that the daily number of reported cases in New York State, which is most recently 7,917, which has grown very frequently, or very rapidly since then, will drop below 1,000 until the end of April. They say that the survey collects each expert's best estimate for each question, as well as their best case and worst case estimates. From those individual responses, the survey organizers, Thomas McAndrew and Nicholas Reich of the University of Massachusetts Amherst, build a probabilistic consensus forecast, which is a tool that combines all of the responses to project the most likely future scenario, as well as the range of possible outcomes. They, the smallest most likely and largest number of total cases that the COVID-19 tracking project is reporting is really where you have to look to be interested. And I mean, really right now we're on April 3rd. So the report is saying, you know, April 5th, and they're trying to track this week by week. When the survey was sent out on March 30th, which was the beginning of this week, the COVID tracking project was reporting about 141,000 COVID-19 cases in the United States. The survey asked how many total cases will be reported on April 5th, and even just a week out, there was a great deal of uncertainty in many of the experts' forecasts, simply because um, their their ex- their range in the answers that they provided was just so wide. In fact, the low-end estimate was about 141,000 cases, the high-end estimate went all the way up to 1 million. If we look at the coronavirus map right now from Johns Hopkins University, we'll see that there's 273,000 cases in the United States. The best estimates, uh, the low-end estimate was actually around there for this week as well. And we are not, we have not completed the week. We're still in April 3rd. But this, the best estimate, according to this map, is over 500,000, but far below 750,000. So it would not be unreasonable to predict that there, there are going to be, you know, 530,000 coronavirus cases, maybe even more, maybe 560,000 coronavirus cases in the United States by the end of um, the week, by April 5th, sorry, by the beginning, by the beginning of next week. They, they also, the other question that they're trying to map out, and again, these are just estimates. We have to remember that the estimates are only as good as the data that is put in to actually calculate the estimates. They say that uh, experts estimate uh, the total number of COVID-19 deaths in the United States the best estimate is over 500,000, but below a million. And there again, this is really where case numbers are a little bit, I think, easier to predict because there's way more data or at least higher numbers of cases. And the only way that these experts are able to actually predict the or make these graphs in it somewhat accurately, and again, none of these are actually you know promised to be accurate in any way. They are just projections. They're just models, is when they have more data to work with. And again, I mean, obviously, that's sort of counterintuitive because the whole purpose of these is to prevent the virus, but it does sort of help their research when there are more cases and the, the virus has been along around for longer, and that, that's really how they're modeling their data. The reason all this matters is because the government is trying to mitigate the virus overall. And now the good news is that on a federal level, the congressional action is over, at least for now. I mean, the $2.2 trillion stimulus package hopefully will hold everyone over for a little bit, a little while, but it's certainly a possibility that more stimulus packages could be coming from the government. Uh, the government is you know, basically on to face the next challenge right now, both f- locally, statewide, and federally, and that challenge is infrastructure. Quite honestly, I'm actually, and I'm not saying this subjectively at all, uh, the federal government is not really doing that well at, any, at anything related to what I like to call crisis infrastructure, meaning N95 masks, the beds, the ventilators, the things that you hear about on the news, the, the things that they're running out of, the things that states are running out of, the things that the country is actually running out of. And, and Trump is at least mildly accepting of the lack of infrastructure that the country is able to provide, uh, at least relatively speaking, because everything will be fine. 
people will get masks. It's just really a matter of time and a matter of generosity from corporate companies at the end of the day. Everything will be, I think, all right, but it's just a little bit scary when you see these numbers. Anyway, I think Trump's belief, though, is more strongly tied to conservative doctrine in terms of, it's you know, it's not my problem sort of belief. One of the beliefs in conservative thought is that the federal government should be minimally involved in pretty much everything. I mean, the government should be minimally involved to begin with, but spe- specifically the federal government should be minimally involved. And the governors of actual states are, you know, be, and the reason for the federal government, sorry, being minimally involved is that the governors of actual states are a little bit more familiar with the needs, financial, medical, or otherwise, of the states that they govern over, which supplements the reason why there should not be a, um, why the state leadership should be a little bit more involved in the citizens' lives, not the federal government. But nonetheless, the politics will always interfere with Trump. And you know, within with Trump specifically, semantics and show business are really the things that make him extremely mad. You may remember that in the beginning of this virus, you know, the coastal states out west were hit extremely hard, particularly Washington and Oregon. Actually, the first case in the uh, of the virus in the United States was in Washington State, and it was thought that Washington State was going to erupt with cases. In fact, an article back in early March suggested that the numbers in Washington State were going to go, you know, skyrocket. In fact, an article from Stat News, which is a health-focused website, says that the coronavirus outbreak in the Seattle area is at a critical juncture and could see explosive growth in cases much like Wuhan, China, if public officials don't take immediate forceful measures, according to a new analysis of genetic data. Of course, this was written in March 3rd, which is you know actually exactly a month ago from today. So this was in the beginning of the virus within the United States, at least, and they suggest this article suggested that if the governor of this state or any you know, leadership within the state didn't move quickly. The virus is just going to go nuts. People are going to be dying left and right. It's going to go, it's going to be crazy. And the good news is that the state government did act. Democrat Governor Jay Inslee was one of the first ones to take measures before any other states did. So he was sort of the lonely person in the United States with coronavirus. He was the only governor that really had, was, you know, put in a place to um, have tough decisions in his hands. And in the early days of this virus, you know, it was really probably scary for Jay Inslee to make big decisions about this thing because there were no other governors there to support him. And the president, who, you know, you may turn to during times of crisis, as we've seen in history, you're supposed to turn to the president in times of crisis. But at that time, when when this, when Washington, the case numbers in Washington, you know, started to grow and grow and grow, Trump was out in South Carolina a couple days before all this, you know, before Inslee had to make these tough decisions. Trump was out in South Carolina you know, squawking about how Democrats concocted the coronavirus as their new hoax. Here is Trump in South Carolina uh, in late February uh, when, the you know, on the verge of Washington and the United States beginning to grow in coronavirus cases. One of my people came up to me and said, Mr. President, they tried to beat you on Russia, Russia, Russia. That didn't work out too well. They couldn't do it. They tried the impeachment hoax. That was on a perfect conversation. They tried anything. They tried it over and over. They've been doing it since you got in. It's all turning. They lost. Yeah, okay. So that's that's what Trump was saying, you know, in the days that Jay Inslee was probably going to have to make some tough decisions about his state and what they're actually going to do. So Mr. Inslee, for a couple of reasons, which we'll talk about in a second, could not turn to the president. And Mr. Inslee also was outspoken about Trump during the early days of the virus, saying that the White House wasn't doing enough. And on top of that, even before this entire thing started, he ran for president against, well, I mean, he was, he was, he did not make it too far. He was off the ticket in August, but uh, he clearly had, a you know, 
beef with Trump before the coronavirus thing actually started, and he really has does not like Trump. I mean, he's trying to replace him for president. He attacked him repeatedly on other issues previously, specifically with gun control, I think, and then he was attacking him on coronavirus, and on top of that, he ran for the president of the United States. So, Inslee and Trump are really not friends with each other, and the reason I'm using Inslee as an example uh, is to highlight Trump's communication strategies federally to locally, or federally to state governments, because this is really important. This really speaks to the Trump's the Trump Trump personally, and maybe the Trump administration's strategy in dealing with people. Trump Trump's personal strategy, as we've seen so many times, when he deals with people he doesn't like, he either a you know attacks them publicly, or b chooses not to speak to them, lies, and then delegates the work to someone else. In a stunning development, Trump uh, chose option B and pushed the work to his vice president, Michael Pence. And honestly, on a federal level, the two best people during this entire thing, in my opinion, are Mike Pence and Mike Pompeo, the two Mikes, because they have actually done, and again, Mike Pompeo is the secretary of state, they have done a decent job putting the partisanship aside and actually dealing with the virus uh, politically, basing their knowledge off of facts that Fauci, Burks, and others have said. I mean, with the obvious exception of Dr. Fauci, Dr. Burks, and all the people who are, you know, contributing to the solution of the crisis, everyone else in Washington, meaning, you know, Trump, Mnuchin, McConnell, Pelosi, Schumer, maybe, everyone in this crisis have not done too well during this thing, or they've not gone above and beyond. And by not done too well or not go above and beyond, I mean, they, they have very, they've had very little ba- value uh, apart from the passage of the stimulus. I mean, Trump signed the stimulus. Stimulus. Mnuchin's going to deal with the bureaucracy of the stimulus. McConnell fought with the stimulus, as he should. Most Pelosi fought with the stimulus, as she should. Schumer also fought for the stimulus, as he should. By the, I mean, co- Congress's, you know, supplemental legislation should be the forefront of Congress's mind during times of need like this. There's no reason to sort of append other legislation, as we've seen some people in Congress trying to do right now, that they're trying to sort of push their agenda through even though it might not have anything to do with coronavirus. That's a whole other issue. But I think the best people during this entire thing, really, have been Fauci, Dr. Fauci, Dr. Burks, Mike, uh, Vice President Pence, and Secretary of State Pompeo. I just have to, you know, I mean, and, and that's really where it ends in terms of a federal level. Now, th- this was a couple of days ago, which makes it sort of old news in these circumstances, what I'm about to play. But you'll see why I'm using this particular situation with Jay Inslee as an example. Here's Trump explaining basically his... White House communication strategy of blockage, which, as I talked about before, is option B of his communication strategy. This is at the the White House podium uh, one week ago today. We have done a job the likes of which nobody's seen. So it's the words they're saying that you're concerned about. I think they should be appreciative because, you know what, when they're not appreciative to me, they're not appreciative to to FEMA. It's not right. These people are incredible. They're working 24 hours a day. Mike Pence. I mean, Mike Pence, I don't think he sleeps anymore. These, these are people that should be appreciated. He calls all the governors. I tell him, I mean, I'm a different type of person. I say, Mike, don't call the governor of Washington. You're wasting your time with him. Don't call the woman in Michigan. Well, it doesn't make any difference what happens. The governor of Washington? No, you know what I say? If they don't treat you right, I don't call. He's a different type of person. He'll call quietly anyway, okay? But he's done a great job. He should be appreciated for the job he's done. Okay, so I mean... He literally just admitted that he doesn't talk to people who don't who don't like him, regardless if you know there's tens of millions of people's lives at stake. I mean, literally, uh, hundreds and hundred and fifty million Americans 
uh, are you know are basically under stay at home orders. They're they're being told to stay inside. And Trump is just saying, you know what I say? If they don't like me, then I don't call them. I mean that's crazy, especially if they're governors. And when half the country, uh, you know, doesn't really like him, or about half the country doesn't really like him at this moment, and that of course is represented in the constituencies that these governors govern over. Because there are a lot of Democrats who are governors, and there are a lot of Republicans who are governors, but if Trump only wants to talk to the Republicans, the people who won't criticize him, that is a very dangerous game. And it's, first of all, I mean, you know, I think this clip that I just played where he talks about this really illustrates publicly how bad Trump's temper can prove to be in times of crisis. Now, I'm sure lots of presidents have felt this way in the past. It's probably not a new thing. I mean, I would probably feel that way about certain governors as well. If I were the president, I wouldn't want to talk to everyone at every you know instance during a crisis. But I really don't know why Trump would have to point that out publicly, and why he doesn't have the guts to just help someone out in a time where they are you know where they share something that is you know in need of great attention. They're both struggling through the coronavirus. They're both in a position of elected power. Insley, Trump, governors presidents, they're all sort of the same thing, and they're all in the executive branch of some sort of representative electorate. So that is both of their citizens, you know, and they also share the fact that both of their citizens are infected at a large scale, and many of their citizens are dying frequently. Now, if Trump were sitting across from me right now, uh, trying to, you know, criticize everything I'm saying about him, criticize criticize my criticisms of him, he would probably say that Inslee started the feud by running for president, and that, you know, it. It's his fault because he started, you know, the hatred towards me. Well, Mr. President, he dropped out, and now you're the president. Also, it's one thing, really. I, this is a, an important point that that reaches far beyond, in my opinion, the presidency. It's one thing to be a, a jerk if you offer some goods and services to make up for your lack of character. And I'm referring to Trump here, obviously. But it's another thing when you don't have any material. And by that, I mean the personal protective equipment like masks and other things that I addressed before. And that brings me next to the infrastructure point. Uh, I'm no means suggesting when I say that, you know, he doesn't have the, um, the, the material. It's not his fault. It's not Trump's fault directly that there is a massive shortage in the federal stockpile of masks and ventilators. I mean, the, the stockpile has been around for a while. Trump inherited it. And I think we should, as a country, rally around the government, regardless of how, you know, both state and federal, regardless of how, um, you know, stupid we think the people in power are. I think that we should rally around the people who are protecting us, the people who are trying to do well. So I do think that it's important to support the White House. I think it's important to support the CDC and other U.S. intelligence agencies in these sorts of situations. But the problem is that the federal government is running dangerously low on personal protective equipment. In fact, the New York Times said that the federal government has um, has nearly emptied its emergency stockpile of protective medical supplies uh, as state governors continue to plead for protective gear for desperate hospital workers, according to a senior administration official. The official said that the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, has delivered more than 11.6 million N95 masks, 5.2 million shield, uh, face shields, 22 million gloves, and 7,140 ventilators, exhausting the emergency stockpile. The official said there is a tiny slice of personal protective equipment left over that is being preserved for emergency medical workers uh, for the federal government. Now, that's really scary. You start to see that they're rationing equipment out. Now, we've seen this before uh, because it really it ends up being the fact that they're trying to save equipment for doctors and people who could help save more lives instead of just giving it to one person who, you know, just maybe could live. It really comes down to, like, would you save the guy who's, who's 
going to die now or would you save I mean it's really a moral question ethical question would you save the guy who's going to die now or save you know wait a little while give the mask to someone who could save five people's lives that's really a, the dilemma that people are trying to face right now and it reaches far beyond numbers it reaches it's really scary to see what's actually happening right now in terms of deciding who gets masked and who doesn't but the fact is I and mean, the reality is that at some point govern companies are going to um be called on to actually manufacture these masks. I mean, a lot of them have already donated funds or donated masks already, but the reality is that the government is going to need a lot more, and really it comes down to state-by-state equipment. In fact, the uh, New York Times, more on a federal level, says that while there is no more personal protective equipment in the stockpile left over for the states, the senior official said that the administration still has more than 9,400 ventilators ready to be deployed. They've already deployed 7,140 ventilators, so there still is more right now. But the dwindling resources have forced the federal government to compete with states and private companies for valuable medical gear across the world, says the New York Times. Governors, meanwhile, have continued to fi- try to find ways to scavenge medical supplies for hospital workers workers exposed to the worsening pandemic. It's really scary to see these numbers, and really, um, states are going to have to just start relying on themselves and the stockpiles that they may have built up right now. Um, but the good news, you know, really, is that Thankfully, you know, each state in the United States is not wholly dependent on the federal government for every single thing that they may need. In fact, as I hinted at just before, it is historically assumed that the state government should be the first one acting, you know, which is why you're probably hearing so much about the governors of your states and your local newspapers. And then the state could and should call on the federal government for assistance. Um, Now, this is something that's being hotly contested right now, this idea that that, uh, federal governments are supposed to be the backup for states. Really, it comes down to conservative doctrine. That's the reason it's being criticized. But historically, we've seen that governors of each state are really the ones that are sort of handle the crisis because they have this intimate familiarity with their constituents more so than maybe the federal government would. And they also know a lot more about the specific resources of a state than obviously Trump would, but you know, less obviously any president would. Trump actually hinted at the notion that states are primary, federal is secondary. At this notion that. That is a true fact at a press conference. Uh, actually, I think it was yesterday. We have almost 10,000 in our stockpile, and we've been building it, and we've been supplying it. But the states should be building. We're a backup. We're not an ordering clerk. We're a backup. So that's an interesting way of putting it. I think it's a little bit rough because the federal government should be out there actually helping people. And it, it was only made worse when Jared Kushner took the took the podium, you know, dealing with this infrastructure and the capability of the infrastructure that is actually severely limited. I mean, the the assistance that that the federal government can provide right now is very limited and scarily limited. And the federal government should be more embracing towards states and really less secretive. The the administration is trying to sort of lay this out like the federal government is supposed to be supplemental, which it is supposed to be. I mean, the, the govern the governors or the governments of states and the governors of states should be the the point people for their constituents. Um, and, and that was sort of the notion that people were supposed to walk away from this press conference with. Trump sort of did it a little bit rough around the edges when he said what I just played. But then Mr. Snake Oil Jared Kushner comes into the press briefing and reiterates Trump's claims a little bit more harshly. And then 
The administration, for some reason, just gets really sneaky for no reason. We'll talk about that in a second, but here's Jared Kushner. You have instances where in cities they're running out, but the state still has a stockpile. And the notion of the federal stockpile was it's supposed to be our stockpile. It's not supposed to be state stockpiles that they then use. So we're encouraging the states to make sure that they're assessing the needs, they're getting the data from their local local, uh, situations, and then trying to fill it with the supplies that we've given them. The same thing with the masks. So he's basically saying that the the resources that we're providing are, you know, those are just supplemental. You should be relying specifically on your state stockpile, which generally can prove to be true because states obviously, and I know I sound like a broken record here, but states should rely on their on their own personal supplies before they go to the federal government begging for things. What makes it look horrible, the optics of this are just awful. Daniel Dale, a reporter for CNN, tweeted out the about page for um, public health emergency website, which changed actually after Jared Kushner said made his comments at the briefing. The original um, uh, the original page for this site said on the about page that strategic national stockpile is the nation's largest supply of life saving pharmaceuticals and medical supplies for use in a public health emergency severe enough to cause local supplies to run out. When state, local, tribal, and territorial responders request federal assistance to support their response efforts, the stockpile ensures that the right medicines and supplies get to those who need them most. Um, enduring an emergency organized for scalable response to a variety of public health threats, this res- this repository contains enough supplies to respond to multiple large-scale emergencies simultaneously. So basically, they're saying is, yeah, the government's here. We have this gi- ginormous warehouse of not only products, but we also have a warehouse of knowledge that people can use with training and exercises that we have here for it. And basically, the, the second part of what I said, when state, local, tribal, and territorial responders request federal assistance to support their response efforts, the stockpile ensures that the right medicines um, and supplies get to those who need them during an emergency. That part was cut out after Jared Kushner made his comments on this website, and the new updated one says that the strategic national stockpile's role is to supplement state and local supplies during uh, public health emergencies. Many states have products stockpiled as well. The supplies, medicines, and device for life-saving care contained in the stockpile can be used as short-term stopgap buffer when the immediate supply of adequate amounts of these material may not be immediately available. So literally, it went from, we're the most embracing place on the earth, we're the most generous people on the planet, to this is a stop, short-term stopgap buffer when the immediate supply of adequate materials is out in your specific constituency. Just insane. And that, that's what Jared Kushner's cruelty does. It's really not the first time that he scammed people, because I highly recommend this documentary on Netflix called Dirty Money. Uh, it exposes just how awful uh, Jared Kushner is outside of the White House in his personal uh, business. Just, just... I don't want to go on a rant, but highly recommend, the, doc- the if you have Netflix, Dirty Money. It's a fabulous documentary about Jared Kushner. Anyway, um, back to infrastructure. In most sentences that you hear about infrastructure, even apart from coronavirus, the word China is likely used because China is just the international manufacturing machine, the international manufacturing repository for all things. I mean, you know, everything's made in China, as they say. And they make so many products for the world to use. And that includes masks. Obviously, this virus started in China, so it makes for some awkward tensions between China and the nations that are being affected by this virus at, you know, at, in, in, the, in the present day. Um, the New England Journal of Medicine actually had an article that lays this out very clearly. They say that the U.S. shortage has multiple causes, including problems with uh, the global supply chain. Before the pandemic, for instance, China produced approximately half the world's face masks, but as the infection spread across 
China, their exports came to a halt. Now, as the infection spreads globally and transmission in China slows, China is shipping masks to other countries as part of goodwill packages. The United States has not been a major recipient. Now, what's funny is that the um, New England Journal of Medicine puts it very nicely that this um, that the United States has not been a major recipient. The New York Times has a little bit of a rougher, more uh, aggressive headline that says the world needs masks, China makes them, but has been hoarding them, as you can see if you're watching on the video right now. So that's sort of funny, but really they, they are pointing out that China has not um, been giving out many masks to, they've been giving out some masks, but they're hoarding them and really specifically not providing them to the United States. Um, I mean, it just, I think it's funny how the, uh, you know, the, the, the doctors at the New England Journal of Medicine say that the United States has not been a major recipient, and the New York Times says China's hoarding them. It's a little bit of a different accusatory way of putting it. Anyway, in terms of nations that are being affected by this virus, Russia has, at least proportionally, and I talked about literally the first episode that I made about coronavirus, I was like, why does Russia border China and have like 17 cases? A little bit suspicious. Continue to think it's a little bit suspicious. Uh, they could be lying about their numbers. I think China's lying about their numbers. Could be that they're lying about them too. But anyway, at least proportionally, Russia has not really been a victim of coronavirus, uh, you know, publicly at least. But in a surprising and inherently suspicious move, Russia President Vladimir Putin sent personal protective equipment to the United States. He sent, he sent gear from Russia to New York for the United States. This is this is crazy. Here's President Trump at the White House actually confirming that Russia sent this uh, lot of gear to the United States for coronavirus. Russia sent us a very, very large plane load of things, medical equipment, uh, which was very nice. It was very nice. I don't know why that why they did that, but that seems to be the case right now. And um, an article from the, uh, from NBC News and Reuters actually says that Russia sent the United States medical equipment Wednesday to help fight the coronavirus pandemic, a uh, public relations coup for Russian President Vladimir Putin after he discussed the crisis with U.S. President Trump. Trump, struggling to fill shortages of ventilators and personal protective equipment, accepted Putin's offer in a phone call on Monday. A Russian military transport left an airfield outside of Moscow and arrived at New York's uh, John F. Kennedy Airport in late afternoon on Wednesday. So that's really interesting. In fact, Dmitry Peskov, who is a Kremlin spokesman, said that Trump gratefully accepted this humanitarian aid from the wholesome country of Russia and the good-hearted country of Russia. Trump himself, Trump himself spoke enthusiastically about the Russian help after his call with Putin, as you just heard. And that's really interesting. I don't really know what, uh, you know, I mean, there's always... There's always a an ulterior motive with Russia. I mean, Trump really made it sound in that clip that you just heard, like, out of their generous hearts, uh, Russia donated the equipment, you know, to the United States out of their wholesome and generous hearts. But no, you know, that's just not true. Secretary of State Pompeo actually said that the United States paid for the gear, but wouldn't say how much. So it was not in any means a donation, and there's probably, uh, you know, on a large scale, this there, there will be an ulterior motive from Russia at some point in the future. And obviously on a large scale... Um, you know, it doesn't really matter where the, the gear comes from, assuming that it actually is gear, and hopefully not, you know, Russia's not scamming it, because scamming us, or, you know, there's something wrong with the gear, or there's something bad with it, because that would be really awful. Anyway, the gear, it really doesn't, the point I'm trying to make is that the gear, it doesn't matter where the gear comes from at all. It really just matters that it's saving people's lives. The, the first reason is that it's saving people's lives, and the second reason is because the United States while we are running low on money, considering we've just spent like $6.5 trillion on a stimulus bill that hasn't even entirely gone into effect yet, we have the money 
uh, to buy the masks, but we do not have the actual masks. I mean, for the United States, the question is not supply right now and demand. It's really not supply and demand at all. It's really more efficiency and infrastructure because we need to buy the masks. We have the money. We just don't have the masks. And that's also part of the reason that Trump is uh, calling on corporate companies to start manufacturing them. In fact, he attacked 3M the other day for trying to sell these masks to the highest bidder, which is just awful. But anyway, the equipment is needed in the United States, uh, but Russia, you know, always has an ulterior motive, and we will likely feel the consequences of their mischief, whether we can see it now or not, at some point in the relatively distant future. And uh, I can't, can't wait for that. In other news about coronavirus that has less to do with infrastructure, Chris Cuomo, the anchor on CNN, was infected with coronavirus. When I saw this, I was really shocked and sad, actually. Regardless of what you think of you know, Chris as a host, I can say that he's actually a really nice person. He was, at least to me, um, you know, in the like seven minutes I met him. I mean, I mean that very seriously. I actually met Chris once for a couple minutes um, in New York when he was doing his New Day show back in the day. He was extremely welcoming, very nice, and he actually let me ride down the CNN elevator way back in the day. He was really nice to me. He's really smart. I mean, if you watch his show, you can see that even though you may think he's biased, which I do think he is, I mean, I think all media is biased, I think he's really smart too. I actually think that he's the best anchor on CNN by far. Uh, and I really only started thinking that after he got his primetime slot, which suits him much better than the New Day slot, both in terms of content and style. But that's a whole other thing. Anyway, the, the the relevant news here is that he tested positive for coronavirus and he's isolating, actually doing his show in his basement. He announced it on Twitter saying that in these difficult times that seem to get more difficult and complicated by the day, I just found out that I'm positive for coronavirus. I've been exposed to people in recent days who have subsequently tested positive, and I had fever, chills, and shortness of breath. I just hope I didn't give it to the kids and Christina, his wife. That would make me feel worse than this illness. I'm quarantined in my basement, which actually uh, makes the rest of my family seem pleased. I will do my shows from here. We will all beat this by being smart and tough and united, which is good to hear, and I hope, I mean, hopefully he's doing well. Chris's brother happens to be named Andrew, and Andrew happens to be the governor of New York. Andrew Cuomo uh, actually addressed his brother's diagnosis during one of his frequent uh, press conferences on COVID-19. He had a a little bit of snark about his brother, but it was just funny to watch. My brother Chris uh, is positive for coronavirus. Found out this morning. The, uh, now, uh, he is going to be fine. He's... Uh, young, in good shape, uh, strong, not as strong as he thinks, but uh, he will be fine. So that's good to hear, and with some snark there. But the value that one can gain simply from seeing someone like him have it, and actually Andrew Cuomo recognized this just from a political perspective, the value that one can gain from this is you know, some, seeing someone like Chris or really any other news anchor, and I heard that Brooke Baldwin over at CNN also has coronavirus, but anyway, seeing that someone like in a public, which is not good, uh, which, seeing someone you know in the public who has coronavirus test positive for it, it's something that really gives them the firsthand experience of what things are like, and it probably is good for people to actually see what's happening. Last night, Chris was actually on CNN, and he described how he was feeling. It's sort of long, but I, I do think that there is, um, you know, there's often 
this much in there's there's really not often this much inside perspective into what the daily life of a coronavirus patient is and it maybe this is motivating if you're not taking the virus seriously you should take the virus seriously here's chris talking about it my fever has gone up a couple of degrees in like the last 30 minutes nights are tough and i've learned something that i didn't know before uh it is responsible journalism to say that 80 percent of people who get this uh statistically wind up okay meaning they don't go to the hospital they get through it it is not humanly responsible, uh, though, from an ethical perspective. Now that I'm one of the anointed and these people reach out to me, you suffer uh, when you have this at home unless you are ridiculously lucky statistically and maybe karmically. Uh, here's what I know, uh, that the chicken soup is not just anecdotal. You look online, even if you go to JAMA, you know, the Journal of American, uh, you know, go to the Medical Association Journal. The, that has worked for me, I believe. I believe that it has helped me lower my fever in periods. Um, I have been counseled to try to endure fever as much as I can because the fever is the body's fighting mechanism. So that's what he said on CNN uh, last night. And Chris also said that the fevers and the effects that you will feel as a result of the virus are so intense that you actually begin to hallucinate at times. He said that he saw his father, Mario Cuomo, who died years ago, I think in either 2015 or 2013, he saw he said that he saw them, uh, saw his father sitting at the edge of his bed and encouraged, you know, following social distancing measures. Um, basically, he said, if you're taking this lightly, you shouldn't. He began with his story, with the hallucination uh, of his father. You're talking about that. And you have these wicked phantasmagorical experiences that are not dreams. When I say I saw my father sitting on the end of the bed. I would have gladly raised my hand as an affiant and testified to it under oath easily. Um, why? Because the fever, because your body's all screwed up. So what I'm saying is, yeah, I'm going to make uh, fun of some of this stuff, but it isn't funny when you're living it for people. And I do not mean to dismiss their pain. I'm just trying to help people not be too spooked because everybody's so spooked about getting this that if I get it, what will happen? You'll survive. But at the same time, if you think you're going to take the social distancing lightly, or you're going to be nonchalant with any of the beautiful things that Sanjay laid out in that video. I am asking them to send me a copy of your video, uh, Sanjay, because Christina has been going through those protocols in the house. You know, she's taking care of all of us right now. And it's so important to do everything the right way. Otherwise, you wind up exposing yourself. But I'm just telling you, Anderson, you'd make it. But it's so hard that to say it's nothing, don't worry about it, right. is totally disingenuous because you are going to experience things you likely never have. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. And actually, I think that what we're forgetting, maybe what I've forgotten when I'm covering this thing, is the fact that, you know, people are actually experiencing this. Maybe if you're a listener and you have coronavirus, um, you may be listening to this right now. Uh, if you do and you're able to speak, we'd love to have you on the show. 312-625-8492. You can call us or email us at comments at j-story.com. Uh, but anyway, I mean, Chris actually offers an extremely uh, interesting, you know, perspective into the day in the life of someone who actually is infected with coronavirus and it goes far beyond simply the numbers and the statistics that are being presented right now in this virus which is uh good and good to see it's bad that he has it but it's nice to actually see as andrew cuomo in a separate clip recognized that you know he offers this public perspective into what someone's life is like during coronavirus in uh, technology news we're going to talk about apple we're going to move away from coronavirus for right now, just to sort of take your mind off of what is happening right now in the world. Apple has made their way into the news again. They first bought, uh, or they first released uh, iPads. They did that last week. We talked about it on the podcast. They also 
released a new uh, uh, MacBook Air, and the iPad that they released also had a LiDAR scanner and some other interesting new technology, but they just have done another thing. For the second week in a row, they are, ba- they are back in the news. They have bought the weather app, Dark Sky. It's a fabulous weather app. It's basically hyper-local. It's widely used. I think they have like 75,000 ratings on on uh, the App Store. They deliver up-to-the-minute forecasts about tons of areas throughout the country, and Apple just bought the company for an undisclosed amount. And the worst part is that not only are they shutting down the Android version, which is sort of expected. I don't know why they'd have to do that. Well, I do know why they'd have to do it, but uh, and they did shut. they not only shut down the Android part of the app, worse than that, they shut down the API. That That's really the worst part. The API, for the non-nerds out there, is the application program interface. It's the platform that basically uh, Dark Sky allows its competitors or other people who want to use it to reference the source of their weather and then extract the data of what Dark Sky is providing into a different and more brand-specific platform. In other words, they're basically saying, here's all the data you can do. What, like Dark Sky is basically providing the data to you know, people who want it, and then those people can put it into their own apps and use Dark Sky's data, but still custom code the platform that they want, they want to. Um, so anyway, Dark Sky is pulling the plug on all this. They addressed it in a blog post. They say um, that there will be no changes to Dark Sky for iOS at this time. Um, it will continue to be available for purchase in the App Store. The Android and Wear OS app will no longer be available for download service to existing customers or existing users and subscribers will continue to uh, until July 1st, 2020, at which point the app will be shut down. Subscribers who are still active at that time will receive a refund. Weather forecast maps and embeds will continue until July 1st, 2020. The website will remain active beyond that time in support of API and iOS customers. Speaking of API, they say that our API service for existing customers is not changing today, but will but we will no longer accept new signups. The API will continue to function through the end of 2021. As a part of this transition, use of Dark Sky by Apple is subject to the Apple private privacy policy, which can be found at apple.com slash privacy, which is sort of interesting. So they're no longer... Any, by any means, a distinct entity. I'd really love to know how much they actually completed this acquisition for. I'd uh, really love to know the numbers, but I guess we can't see that at the moment. Um, that's basically the the end of the story for now. I mean, I'm sure they'll Apple will redo the app, make it all Apple-y in some sort of way. Really, the question is, why did they buy this? Because Apple already has the weather app. They already have this fabulous UI for that app. Of course, they don't... They, they get uh, their weather from, I think, the Weather Channel and other places around the, the the world, actually, for all this weather, uh, they just extract the data, like from an API from these places, and then they put it into their own custom app. What what was the purpose of them buying Dark Sky? Was it just to eliminate the competition using their API? Was it to, you know, transfer the users over to the weather app? Did they want to get maybe like a pre- weather premium built into iOS? These are all questions that we'll have to actually see in the coming days. Maybe those are all ridiculous ideas, but maybe those are practical things that we could see uh, Apple upgrading to in the in the near future. Um, so that's that's the first piece of tech news. We'll continue to keep you updated on that as more details become available. It's very limited right now. But uh, more details, or the, the other big story in technology right now, which has a little bit more detail, is that T-Mobile, the cell phone carrier company, has completed the acquisition of fellow cell phone company Sprint. They've been on quite the spending or acquiring spree in modern history. In 2013, T-Mobile bought Metro PCS, which is now called um, Metro by T-Mobile. And now they've just bought Sprint. 
T-Mobile will call Sprint, their existing Sprint customers, the new T-Mobile. Very clever. Uh, T-Mobile CV- CEO John Legere is out, basically. Mike Sievert is taking over everything. John Legere, by the way, or Legere, uh, is an American treasure. You can find out why on T-Mobile's YouTube channel. Anyway, in my mind, the, the four cell phone carriers are and have always been AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile, and Sprint. Those are basically the four main carriers, at least within the United States. The big guys being AT&T and Verizon, the small guys being T-Mobile and Sprint. The bigger of the small guys, T-Mobile, just absorbed the smaller of the small guys, Sprint. And as a result of this corporate supersizing, basically is what's being deemed, there are now three major cell phone carriers to choose from. AT&T, Verizon, and T-Mobile. So if you're one of the 54 million people who use Sprint and you're listening to this podcast, immediate changes will be very minimal. It will basically be the same price for now. It'll be the same website for now. Same everything for now. Uh, Really, the only places uh, that you can look when you're trying to actually find out the logistical consequences of massive acquisition like this are the actual website itself and actually interesting FAQs that they actually published on their website. In fact, T-Mobile actually was very transparent about this on their website. At least they weren't secretive or they didn't, you know, try and hide anything. It wasn't like they just, you know, let the media handle that. But they basically said, we're going to control the message on this one. They say, T-Mobile and Sprint are coming together to build the best wireless company all around. We've been on this journey because we believe it will be better for customers. Through the years, we've taken major strides to answer the needs of our customers, and we won't stop. Basically, the goal is laid out in three plans, or at least the public goal is laid out in three plans. They say that they want massive capacity. They say over the next six years, our capacity will increase 14 times over what we have today. They say that in the next six years, our network will be eight times faster than current LTE in just a few years, and then 15 times faster in the next six years. Sorry, yeah, eight times faster in just a few years, so maybe three, I don't know, and then 15 times in the next six years. You see, we already have the largest 5G network, and within the next six years, we'll provide 5G to 99% of Americans, assuming you have a capable device. That's the asterisk under there. But the AQ, the FAQs are really what, in my opinion, is extremely interesting. The question really that any you know, T-Mobile customers will have to ask themselves are, do you need to do, do or, I mean, sorry, Sprint customers have to ask is, do I need to do anything? Do I need to sign up? Do I need to get a new phone? The answer is no. For now, all customers will stay with the same Sprint and T-Mobile network stores and service they've been using. Behind the scenes, the team is working to, hard to bring it all together to create an amazing experience customers of the new T-Mobile, um, and that's where they uh, say, that's what they say right now. Now, this is really where you get into the corporate speak of these FAQs. Even though a lot of the, or some of the information is valuable, you'll really be able to see this corporate speak where it's sort of like a bunch of words, just words serving no purpose, but they're just existing to fill the space and make them sound smart. They say that we are uniting and combining our resources to bring customers the connectivity, service, and the value they deserve. We are taking things to an entirely new level. Okay, Starting today with the arrival of the new T-Mobile, custo- cu- uh, consumers and businesses win when it's more important than ever. We'll build a transformative nationwide 5G network that will drive innovation and connect every American. With T-Mobile's low band, Sprint's mid band, and other spectrum, we'll build the highest capacity nationwide uh, network in U.S. history. Uh, okay, that sounds very promising. The thing is, this will be um, quite the big acquisi- acquisition um, in terms of 
people because the T-Mobile's current customer numbers, um, I believe, were in the ballpark of 60 to 70 million. Sprint's was about 54 million, as I just said. AT&T is about 150 million. Uh, I think Verizon, the last time I checked, was 117 million, something like that. So these are huge, huge companies. I could be wrong on that. I think Verizon was 118 million. Um, huge numbers of customers. And again, I'm just getting that off the top of my head. The, you know, the transition, the merger between these companies is just going to be ginormous. Uh, and the, you know, T-Mobile really has established itself as not just a brand where there are so few people using it, and it's not like, you know, the the third largest of the four. It's now established itself as a big player. It's sort of a trio now of the best um, the best carriers that you can get within the United States, and that was probably really uh, T-Mobile's goal in acquiring Sprint in the first place. Anyway, I think it's really, uh, you know, it's not only, it's been going on for a while. I think it's actually the, the deal started in, 2018. I think summer of 2018 is when it started in, and this thing is complete. The, the deal is complete, basically, uh, and we'll be able to see this in the future and what actually ends up happening. They say, when will the T-Mobile Sprint merger take effect? They say the deal has already closed. Sprint has joined the T-Mobile family. That's that's the language they keep using. In fact, John Legere, who's the American treasure I was speaking of, you'll find out why at T-Mobile's YouTube channel, um, they've they've closed closed the deal. They, they keep referring it to the T-Mobile family. Uh, that's, again, corporate speak right there. Uh, so that's really interesting. Um, of course, they also have to sell the people on this. Basically, the their point here is that they're... they're T-Mobile's point here is that they're increasing capacity. They're increasing how much you can do with a T-Mobile phone, what you can do with a phone that's on T-Mobile service, and how great... How, you know... You can just push forward in these innovation in these innovative times. Um, they say with 14 times more total capacity in the next six years than T-Mobile would have had alone, customers won't have to choose between great services or low prices. They'll get both. I'm giving a free ad to T-Mobile right here. The, t- the new T-Mobile is committed to offering 5G access and at the best rate at low prices. Blah 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 blah. All they're talking about is corporate speak and advertisements, and you can find all of that at j-doherty.com slash T-Mobile FAQ if you feel so inclined. You want to learn about this, or if you're just a Sprint or a T-Mobile customer, because, you know, if you if you are one of those, you have just established yourself as uh, probably, arguably, the biggest brand in smartphone acquisition right now. The, it's sort of like Agario. The two, the two small bubbles absorbed to make an even bigger bubble than the two other bubbles that are out there right now. And I'm talking about, you know, AT&T, Verizon, Sprint, and T-Mobile. That was a weird metaphor. But that's sort of how I think about it because um, it is very plausible to see that T-Mobile and Sprint, when they really complete their acquisition in the way that their, you know, expansion after the acquisition, they will probably be bigger than one of the two, AT&T, and Verizon. I think that's very plausible, and I'm really interested to see what's going to happen with T-Mobile because their goal right now, at least publicly in my opinion, scale. All they want is scale, and uh, that's an interesting strategy with companies because a lot of times when you have scale, you forget about the actual user, and that's not good. Person, Michael Heidemann is going to join us for an exclusive interview on the J Doherty Podcast. That's coming up. This is the J Doherty Podcast.
to the Jay Doherty Podcast. That is correct, everyone. Thank you very much for being here. This is the Jay Doherty Podcast, and today we have something just a little bit different for you as we return from our break here in the second segment of the show. We're going to have an interview with Michael Heidemann. He is a nationally recognized music journalist, a Grammy Awards member, a South by Southwest mentor, and he's using the COVID-19 coronavirus as an opportunity to entertain through the live streams that he's been broadcasting via Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and more. Michael joins the Jay Doherty Podcast now to talk about what he is doing. Michael, welcome to the Jay Doherty Podcast. Jay, I'm a huge fan of the show. A longtime listener, first-time caller. Thanks for having me on the show. I, I can't tell you how much, uh, how busy I've been with this live stream, and it's great to talk to you because your podcast actually keeps me entertained during this quarantine. Are you staying safe and sanitized, my friend? I am indeed, and I hope you are doing the same. I mean, I've, I've been watching many of your live streams on uh, both Twitter and Instagram. You call them the lockdown live streams for obvious reasons. They're really entertaining. Could you just explain to like my listeners who maybe haven't seen them what uh, you do in these streams and what your goal is overall? Absolutely. So this live stream came to be because of the COVID-19 outbreak and this huge pandemic that hit, that hit Chicago and the rest of the world. For a while, nobody knew how to even handle it or what to do. And I host this. I, I've been given the great opportunity to host this open mic every single Saturday at Bill's Bar and Burger here in River North in Chicago at 30 East Hubbard. But every Saturday, 9 to midnight, that was my last year and a half. I mean, every single Saturday was spent there with these great musicians from Chicago, but great people. And they came to me, and I got a few messages when this thing hit and everything started to get me shut down. Uh, Mike, what are you going to do with this, with the shutdown? What do we do with the open mic? What are we going to do to create a great space for these Chicago musicians? And I thought to myself, what the heck, man? I, I can't believe this because I had set up this live streaming service for Bill's Bar and Burger to, to record remotely, but we never quite got it because with the remote access, the internet was a little bit too hard to really stream these great performances from a bar, like from, you know, we're sitting in the middle of River North. And now, almost like a godsend, uh, this great service uh, that I'm using, BeLive, uh, shout out BeLive, they're a great, great service, uh, has this great platform where we can bring in musicians and have a four-person, five-person, and maybe even more later on conference of musicians who go around Robin, Nashville-style way of playing music where we each play a song. And hopefully the end goal will be to give these musicians a great place and a platform to play their music and to do things while they're locked in their rooms. Because most musicians, believe it or not, Jay, Mm -hmm. are not the cool, suave guys you think they are and girls that you think they are. Most of the time, they spent their college careers, their high school days and their middle school days in their bedrooms, quarantined themselves rocking out on these guitars so now to be in this space where you spend all this time working on this on your instrument and being locked in your room it's like almost like getting thrown back into the days when you were practicing yeah (laughs) yeah in your basement and now having this space hopefully musicians from chicago and worldwide will come to the sanitized sessions the chicago lockdown live stream here uh on facebook live every night at nine to nine to whenever um, every single night, and hopefully they come here and they have a good, friendly, safe space. Yeah, I mean, how do you seek out the majority of the creators that actually come on your uh, show? People actually just reach out to me. My buddy Blake Gallison came on last night, and it just came from him coming on uh, randomly and joining and playing a few songs, and he said, hey, hey, dude, I want to jam out tonight. Um, 
uh, I'd like a little bit more time. And I gave him some more time. We had this great conversation about music and what it meant to us and the importance of the Chicago music community. So it's all these musicians who reach out to me on Facebook. So if you want to perform or if you want to be a guest on our show, just reach out to me, Michael Heideman on Facebook. And the page is The Sanitized Sessions. But it's as easy as just saying, yo, Mike, I want to play some music and then I'll get you on and you can perform. Yeah, we'll have your information over at the website on the show notes uh, when you go to j-dorty.com. And Mike, obviously, you just heard him plug it. Um, but, I mean, I know there's like lots of ta- content creators out there right now, both on the big screen and the small screen that are you know trying to entertain during a time of need and a time of uncertainty. And many of them have like lots of different goals, as you just said. So, so what is your goal in live streaming these events? I mean, is it just generally to create the platform that you just described or, or, you know, is it something that you want to expand upon in the future into like a brand or something, you know, specific to you? <laughs> so this is the craziest thing. My life is, is spent trying to figure out any way to not work a nine to five. So I did this um, purely out of joy. I did it to connect and, and hang out with my, my old buddy soul, who is my brother's girlfriend. The altruistic idea is that musicians from all over the world come every single night, nine to nine to whenever, and just jam out and have a good safe space where you can see like your friends on the screen and you can, you can hear their laughter and them asking you questions about your song and you getting to tell a story in front of everybody. And the other thing is you're live on air. So you're being genuine and you're being sincere about what you're talking about. And there's something about that, that a beautiful thing about live streaming that I never even noticed where I think using it as a platform to connect people who need the connection because like I said musicians are most of the time introverted people nerds who sat in their room me being one of them and I wear that badge very proudly but you need a place to go to every once in a while so hopefully this turns into just a space where people uh can come to and just jam out hang with some friends and you know eventually just turn into uh, just a cool place for musicians to hang out. Do you think you would have found yourself doing a similar thing with the live streams, at least, like digitally, if there wasn't a, a stay-at-home order mandated in Chicago right now? Would you have tried to expand into the sort of going from physical to digital? Yeah, that's a great question, because um, do I see myself sitting in front of a computer screen? No. The whole point of this was to bring Chicago musicians together, because I do host the open mic night. But my favorite part is to introduce people, have them be supported, have them tell their story, have them give their Instagram titles out and where they can find people and network. And then me hide behind the piano and work the levels for the sound. I like being able to, I like being the second banana to people so I can support them. Cause I know that um, it, the people that I stand behind, I see something in them and there's a light in them. And I want my friends and my circle of people who, you know, might, find my stuff enjoyable to see these people, to meet these crazy cool people like you, Jay. Like I, I when the minute you asked me to be on your podcast, I'm like, I, I, Jay is one of the smartest people that I know. And l- seriously, folks, you're going to be hearing the name Jay Doherty in the next 10 years. This guy's going to take over radio. So keep that in mind. And, and like being on your podcast, man, and getting to talk about this, this is where it's at. This is the, this is the best benefit towards doing good works in the world is getting to speak to people who I think are cool and who want to promote something 
that is going to help others. And your podcast does that. So thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, well, thank you so much for being here. I mean, this I all the same stuff that you just said uh, right back at you. I, I completely agree. Final thing, really, that I want to address. I know, like, a lot of music that, that you attend and that pretty much everyone attends is, like, outdoors in large groups of people, particularly with, like, festivals and concerts. So, it, you know, as a music journalist more broadly, someone who, who's a, sort of an enthusiast, as you said, like a second banana in terms of, you know, in, you know, in producing people. And I'm trademarking that, too. Michael Heidemann, second banana. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Do you do you think that this virus is impacting positively or negative the, the like, creative space within music and, and even locally here in Chicago, the space overall that you're trying to reach? Great question, Jay, and that all comes down to the person that you are, I think. It comes down to who you are inside. Do you want to use this coronavirus, this virus, this lockdown, this quarantine? To, to sit around and eat bongo chips and watch TV and, and you know, just do, do you for a little bit, go for it. Because that's self-care. Do what you want to do. And uh, you know what? Because there's nothing I can say or do to make you change. But there's a lot of people out there right now who are using this quarantine time to know that they have this extra beautiful few moments to either spend time with their family, to work with others, or to work on something like coding to uh to learn new language i said seeing i love seeing these instagram stories and these facebook events and these facebook stories about these people who are taking on new instruments uh who are learning how to sing i know myself i just downloaded uh, this great app to help me learn how to sing better because i want to get better as well with this time and the coolest thing about this quarantine you're listening to michael heideman on the jay Doherty podcast talk to me about how he is helping people during the covid19 coronavirus in an entertaining way if you want to hear my interview with mike in its entirety you can go to j-doherty.com slash 131 j-a-y hyphen slash 131 and you'll be able to listen to the interview in its entirety over at the website it's a tjdp insider exclusive j-a-y hyphen d-o-h-e-r-t-y.com slash 131 mike thank you so much for coming on the show jay Thanks so much for having me on. Phone number for this podcast is 312-625-8492. You can receive emails and newsletter updates every week at j-doherty.com slash newsletter. See show notes and episode highlights at j-doherty.com. This has been a JD Media Network production. Thanks for listening. Podcast is written, hosted, produced, and edited by Jay Doherty. The Jay Doherty Podcast is recorded in the studios of the JD Media Network. The Jay Doherty Podcast is a JD Media Network production. Copyright Jay Doherty 2020. Make sure to listen to other JD Media Network productions like the JDRC Politics Podcast for discussions on international politics or the Weekly File Podcast for all the news, just the facts. Learn more and hear more of this content at j-doherty.com or view archive clips and show highlights at thedohertyfiles.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of the J. Doherty Podcast. For all the latest world and national news on technology, politics, and more, listen live to the J. Doherty Podcast on j-doherty.com. J.D. Media Network.